and welcome back to the Remakers and Millie. It's so nice to have a Millie Lily chat. It's been a minute. Yeah, it's so nice to be back. Um, I mean, I know you've been here in some of our other conversations and uh, it's been great to be able to sit down with some really fascinating guests, but it's been a while since you and I just had a good, good old chinwag and I'm looking forward to today, especially because we're talking about something that both of us, um, all of us, everyone in the world engages with in some way but that isn't sort of core to how we think about our work and expertise in terms of kind of making more of the world we want. So that topic, just to not be uh, kind of (laughs) too cryptic about it all, that topic is really the world of fiction, um, fiction and the arts and creating and creativity. And it's been spurred, this desire to talk about this has come from a few different places. You've been doing a really interesting course, which I want to hear all about. And we've been interviewing some really interesting people who kind of work in the space of the arts and and melding the kind of arts and politics and creativity and um, along with the kind of questions about building more of the world we want and more of the world that we don't. So firstly, let's hear a little bit about this cool thing that you've been doing because um, it's 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 been at all terrible time zones. And so I haven't actually been able to debrief with you about it during the day, but it sounds very intriguing. You've been doing a course with Margaret Atwood. Yeah, I have. I mean, what an exciting thing, hey, to get to, it's a course called Practical Utopias. Um, And it's fascinating to be exploring utopias with the queen of dystopias, really. Totally. You know, she, people have said to Margaret, you know, why are you running this practical utopias course? Like, what's the point? She said, well, she writes so often about dystopias. I mean, The Handmaid's Tale being kind of the most famous one of those. Yeah. And by the way, do you watch that? Because I can't bring myself to watch no it. Way. And I know a lot of people love it. <laughs> no way. I, I read the book. No way. Really? Okay. I'm too yeah. Scared. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, and some of her <laughs> other books like Oryx and Crake are terrifying to read. And, yeah. and you know, Margaret is this incredible world builder and that that's what makes them scary is they feel real. And yeah. she, she talks about this in all her books of particularly with The Handmaid's Tale, she says, I I only used things that had happened in history or happen at the moment. So she hasn't, she's cobbled together a new world out of very real things. I think that's why it feels mm. so terrifying is it, it's, it's really grounded in reality. Oh, it's totally <clears throat> chilling. Yeah. Yeah. So it's been amazing to, to be part of this. There's 200 fellows from around the world and we get together at crazy time like two o'clock in the morning for the Australian time zone Um, (laughs) and listen to Margaret talk about utopia and how she builds worlds and then she's been bringing in experts either kind of creative world builders or people who are experts in you know climate science or um, transport technology you know to give the fellows in the course insights into that practical element of utopia. So is the point of the course bringing together these fellows from around the world. And I assume you're all in pretty different fields of expertise and kind of professional practice, as well as different countries and cultures and, you know, kind of um, to try to create a single vision of utopia in some single point in the future? Like what's the kind of stated creative thing that you're trying to build? Yeah. So we're all in smaller groups that are, you know, more time zone friendly. Um, And from that we've been going through over the last eight weeks, this process of, okay, so in our practical utopia, it's a, it's a fantasy world. It's, it's not a, it's not geographically grounded in any one place. Um, you know, so we, we decided, you know, we have a river in our ecosystem. We've got a, ours is based in a city. Um, and then we've gone through, well, what, how would we get around? What would the transport look like? So I've been, you know, this is me Googling, you know, what are, what are the future, what is the future looking like for sustainable transport? And, you know, I'm not really a tech person, but there's these cool new sailing ships <laughs> <laughs> like that, that have these sails that aren't fabric sails, but they're, you know, sort of sails that are a bit more like wind turbines that go around. Anyway, I don't understand the tech, but it, for someone like me who loves to think about vision and the social systems, it's actually been really interesting to force myself to think through and, and to really delve into, well, what, what are the tech elements here? So this has been a challenge for me personally. So, okay, but you're on planet Earth or yeah. Earth-like world. It's not like we've gotten into space. Yeah. And 
when it's called practical utopias, is that because you're supposed to be using technology or things that already in some way exist? Yeah. So it's so interesting to build a world with someone who is a fictional world builder. You know, it's so different. So much of our work in Australia we made right, is going around and asking people, what do you want in your life situated here? Whereas Margaret Atwood's process is, is cobbling together different realities from time and space to create a fictional world. And part of me is like, this is a bit too fantasy, you know, but the constraints we have are that it has to be real tech or a real model of a social system that exists somewhere in the world. Okay. And I found it so fascinating because I don't build worlds like that. And so to come at it from this fictional lens it doesn't, it means we're going to have these utopias at the end that aren't real and aren't grounded in reality, but maybe we'll see how it ends up, but maybe that's going to be more powerful and more real than if we had tried to convince people that, you know, I've I've reworked Hobart for 10 years in the future. Yeah. Right. Okay. That's really interesting. So that leads us to that kind of question of like, when fiction can feel more real or, you know, like when fiction can somehow hit us in a way that just trying to say to people, you know, extrapolate this fact five years into the future. But before we kind of get into that as a, like a bigger conversation about the art and the creative and building a fictional versus trying to rebuild or remake a non-fictional world or universe. So um, it's tech or social systems that exist. Have there been any social models or social systems that you didn't know about or that you've learned more about that you've gone, that's freaking cool. Like anything that kind of took you by surprise is like, we could have a society based on this. Um, I mean, we're still in delving into that. One of the examples, and I, I can't remember the name, we can put it in the show notes, but was a group, I think it was the Maasai and, and the way that they are approaching conservation as deeply tied to the social system. So it's not a separation of like, here's the conservation park for the animals and here's the humans on the outside. It's the way that the program they've set up really brings those two together. Um, so that that has been, you know, because in, in, in Australia, we tend to really separate that out. You know, we'll deal with this social stuff here and the eco stuff here and here's the national park boundary. And so that that was a really exciting model for me. Um, and then it's not so much a social model, but I was speaking to one of the women in my group runs, I think the, I think the company is called Taboo, but it's about ending period poverty. And she was talking about gender and how they've reframed how they talk about gender in, in their uh, company to be, you know, having a period, periods are a human experience. And I really love that because it, it's, it stops this kind of gender binary about this is something that happens to you and this is something that happens to me. Uh, It's about this is something that happens to people in our society and it affects all of us indirectly or directly. And I, so there's been some lovely moments where I'm like, oh, that's a really simple reframe. It's not controversial. It's, it's, it's easy, but it, it changes responsibility for how we care for each other across difference. That makes sense. Yeah, totally. That's really fascinating. And, and so this, are you trying to build, and sorry, because I'm still like nerding out on this, trying to understand it. Are you trying to build a single vision of something altogether or everyone's kind of working on a slightly different vision of a utopia and they, you know, and it'll be a bit of a soup of like, or an ecosystem of different, like, and in our world, we do this. Yeah. There's 10 groups. There's 10 groups. Okay. 10 groups. And are they set in the future or set today? 10 years in the future. 10 years in the future, which is an interesting time and reminds me a little bit of when we were asking people to imagine the country of their dreams. And we said five years into the future, because like, it's just long enough to get you out of that day-to-day mindset of what's happening now. What are the big issues and political stouches and all of that, but it's not so far that we can't really connect to it. And Hey, anything could be happening. Who knows? Yeah. And the questions, you know, even though it is fantasy, the questions that it brings up, like I'm in a group at the moment, we're trying to think about a new economic system. And we've only just got started, so I can't really talk about that. But, um, <laughs> but the questions of like, oh, are we an isolated city? Do we have trade? You know, how does how does this work? So the questions it's forcing us to ask is perhaps even more exciting than the utopias we have built. And I, this is a, a kind of random aside, but one of the things that's really interesting about my group is it's become obsessed with funerals. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> Evolving. Yeah. So... 
one of the subgroups we had of projects to work on was what do we do with human remains? And, you know, because apparently uh, cremation is super carbon intensive, right? So it's, and we're also running out of physical space to, to put human remains in the ground. And there's a whole lot of new technologies and processes like mushroom suits or water, like not cremation, but water burials. I don't really understand how they work. Wow. I'm kind of blocking that from my mind, but you know, it is, it's a big question, right? Um, but the group has ended up wanting to focus on the funeral. So part of this work is that there's an illustrator who's illustrating our utopias at the end and is listening in and we have to do a presentation showcase to the other groups. And our group is just still obsessed with funerals. So our showcase is going to be a funeral that talks about, that showcases what the world is like. And I think that's fascinating that we're talking yeah. about utopia and yet death is central. And it says a lot yeah. about how most of us in my cohort are Western background. Um, it says a lot about how we don't have a good relationship with death and dying and, and how, how we end life can be a sign of, of how we've lived as a society. So, Oh, a hundred percent. I actually think it's really remarkable that that's then centralized because normally in our, you know, culture, it's like, Oh, let's just pretend it doesn't happen. Push it out of our minds as long as we possibly can. Um, so the fact that you guys have actually made that kind of the central hook, I find really cool. Yeah. And we often talk about, let's talk about the babies and the children and through their yeah. eyes instead of let's talk about someone who's just died, hopefully an elder, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, so this idea of building, of world building and a fictional world building, like clearly Margaret Atwood saw some value in thinking about what if we flipped the dystopian script and actively brought people together to try to create, you know, the and flesh out and make real and build a world around the world we want. And I love the quote about, you know, she, I think she says the future can't be fact-checked. Like I like the I know, future because it that. can't be it's such a great, there's so much liberation yeah. in that, you know, there's so much liberation in fiction. There's so much freedom to tell a story when it doesn't have to be, you know, fact A, fact B, fact C, and, and exploring all of the nuances. And so we've known for a really long time that storytelling is a really powerful tool, that it's a really important part of obviously central to being human, central to getting each other to agree on shared realities you know, shared constructs, whether that's money or the nation state or religion or, you know, the other kind of norms that kind of bind society together. Um, and and so it is this really powerful thing that I think we were swimming in all the time but to sort of zoom out and think about the power of of story from the perspective of people who do want to make a better world, it gets really tricky because, you know, we know we want to use story and emotion and, and bring our values to the fore. And I think personally about the films and the television shows and the books that have completely shaped me and changed my life. But when I try to do it in a um, didactic way, when I try to do it in a, you know, I want people to care about X issues. So now I'm going to tell a story about X, Y, Z. I feel a bit, uh, I, I don't know. It feels, um, feels a little bit high horsey or it feels a little bit manipulative or it feels, it feels a little bit preachy. And I sometimes think God, the fiction people have it right. You know, like they're just, they're just, they, you know, that th watching a good film or spending time in a good novel, which, you know, fiction readers have been shown to have higher degrees of empathy, right? And it's that, it's spending time in someone else's shoes that changes us. And I think that like the freedom in that and the beauty and the responsibility in that is, is kind of quite profound. So I'm curious, like, whether there have been any stories um, in whatever medium that really for you shaped you and made you think about the way the world was should work or could work or was going to be when you grew up. Like when you were a kid, was there a show or a movie that taught you like what you thought the adult world was going to be? Well, firstly, I was a kid who wasn't really allowed to watch TV. So definitely wasn't TV that shaped me. We actually have a picture of my brother in the newspaper watching TV in a chook pen. <laughs> Because Why? I think I think there was some anti-commercial TV stuff going on in my house. I'm not really sure. Anyway, it's, it's a family <laughs> gripe that my brother and I were never allowed to watch what everyone else was watching. Um, and I mean, look how you turned out. Clearly I know. Your parents had no idea what they were doing. And I mean, I wish I'd actually prepared to 
answer this question, which I'm going to throw back at you in just a second. But I, I think that, <laughs> you know, the stories that shaped me were the books that I read over and over again. And, you know, this is going to be revealing a little bit about who I am, but, you know, the characters, like I'm rereading Little Women at the moment and um, Anne of Green Gables and Pippi Longstockings, and they were all models of women who wanted to be feminine but wanted to be their own strong version of that and I think that role modeling and similarly um you know Judy Horacek's cartoons they're these feisty strong women who are just out there and so they have a real impact I think on that's the sort of personal identity impact of 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 stories and and visuals um yeah I have to think about that more What, what about for you I mean, when I think about just the future and what I thought the future would look like, I grew up in a family that loved Star Trek. Um, not so much that like we we grew up mostly watching Star Trek The Next Generation with um, Patrick Stewart, sultry, dulcet tones. And I think in, at some point in my consciousness, it, I'm like, well, obviously that's what we're aiming for. <laughs> like, obviously this is the way things are meant to turn out if we get it right, you know, at least on Earth. Um, and, you know, subsequently there have been all of these dystopian kind of Star Trek spinoffs that have come out. And I hate all of them because I'm like, <laughs> no, you're not allowed to shatter my beautiful vision of, you know, Starfleet and the world getting its shit together. Like, that's not okay. Um, that was one for me. I mean, there were, there were things that shaped my idea of what adulthood could be be everything from the babysitter's club when I was young and precocious and wanting more responsibility through to, I don't know, I probably thought dating was going to be something like dirty dancing. I was really disappointed when boys didn't know how to dance. I was like, but what are you doing? Um, And which, you know, talk about embarrassing reveals, but I probably watched that movie a few too many times. Um, Yeah, I, I, I do think you know, especially as kids, we're looking at all of this stuff, learning about kind of how the world can be. My my eldest has just started reading the Harry Potter series and, you know, she's only eight. And so there's a part of me that's like, I want her to read the books. I don't want her to watch all the films yet. I know they go into some pretty dark places, but I also feel like it's a really safe and interesting and engaging way to, to kind of teach her about concepts of does might make right. And, you know, is the line between good and evil, the line that runs through every human heart, or is it as simple as good guys and bad guys? You know, like, I think it's a, I think the arts and story give us um, really rich textured ways to be multifaceted and not black versus white. And, you know, in the kind of good versus bad binary of the world, but actually we're all grappling with the, you know, with these trade-offs and complexities and temptations and weaknesses and goals and desires and, you know. Mm. And it's interesting the way that story and that kind of art form can be revealing about where the psyche is at at that time. So one of the things from this Margaret Atwood course was she was talking about, you know, in the, the 19th century literary, literary utopias, were were quite utopian. You know, they were trying to address the problems of poverty and filth and the woman problem, which kept coming up. I mean, I feel like that comes up all the time, but you know. What was the woman problem in the 19th century? I just think where women fit was part of that right. kind of question. Um, so, but then in the 20th century, the shift had gone to be much more dystopian. So our, our literature shifted away from being primarily utopian to dystopian. And her theory is, is because so many people during that time had attempted real world utopias that failed. And I thought that was really interesting. And she had these hilarious examples, you know, one was a utopia that um, they wanted to deal with overpopulation, but so they had a utopia where sex wasn't allowed, but like clearly that utopia failed for obvious reasons. Wait, this is a real life yeah, thing that happened. Yeah, this is a real life one. So there were Did these... they not think that, so they were fine with all of them dying out. They just. I guess so, you know. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, I guess if then there was, that's the problem you're trying to solve. Yeah, I mean, then there was another real life utopia at the time um, where sex was central and it was about women, older women teaching younger men, but that didn't work out either. And that kind of the origins of that utopia now sell a brand of silverware, you know, so like there's these. Wow. Yeah. And another one, which is, there was a one called Fruitland, which was going to be based on growing fruit, but no one actually knew how to grow fruit. So I think, you know, we had these examples where these <laughs> literary aspirations were taken into the real world, failed spectacularly for really stupid reasons. Um, I mean, also, you know, you saw all the, 
Hitler was an example of a, a utopia that obviously, you know, none of us agree with, but another failed example. So that shift from, it's interesting when we look the other direction and say, well, what is our, what do our stories tell us about what is happening at the time? I read somewhere that the Marvel superhero stories are so popular at the moment because in scary times when the world feels uncertain, you know, we don't know what the future of humanity looks like. We don't know if we're on the brink of another war or another crisis. We know the climate crisis is going to escalate. We want heroes. We want, we find comfort and security in the idea that there's a group of extraordinary individuals who are going to save the day. And one of the people really deeply involved in the films, I can't remember who it was, said, I kind of look forward to when these films aren't as needed. Like I I look forward to the time where humanity feels a bit calmer and more confident about our future, that um, that we're not looking for superhero tales to come in and kind of provide that deep comfort. I mean, life on earth has always been hard and challenging and messy. And, um, you know, there's, I guess I, I wonder then with that idea of trying to create utopias in practice, I mean, we're an organization, Australia Remade, that's all about the idea of leading with a vision of what we actually want. Um, but I don't think that we would say, and now we're going to elect the minister for, you know, each of the nine pillars to enforce some narrow vision on the, like, this This is where we get squeamish, right? It's like, should art and politics be kept separate? Because when people try to create a utopia, it invariably ends in disaster. Are we better off leaving the fiction and the world building to the to the fictional storytellers who can move and affect us and put their thing out there. And if we like it, we can gravitate toward it and, you know, be moved by it. But if we don't like it, we're free to opt out. You know, no one's going to force us to, to participate. Or is that naive? Because government and power and politics has always been about stories and ideas and persuasion. And so being honest about that and saying, no, it's a good thing the Australian government has a massive advertising budget, for example, or it's a good thing to create you know, um, to deliberately fund publicly, you know, the creation of certain things, whether that's ABC, you know, funding the ABC and the Australian stories that that has, or SBS, when we went from being kind of a, you know, colonizing white nation of, with a white Australia policy to needing to reinvent in the public's mind, a vision of this multicultural Australia. And so the government had what I think is a pretty prescient thing of like, well, let's create SBS to, give people, you know, not only new migrants, multi-language programming and stuff, but actually to change the way Australians see themselves for, you know, to become a more multinational, sorry, multicultural, multinational um, nation. So but yeah, anyway, I'll stop talking here because I'm rambling now. No, I mean, I think there's so much in what you're saying. And I, I think I have so many questions for you because storytelling and comms you know, like that, that's your profession. You're very good at it. You've, you understand it in a way that most people don't. Um, I think there's the interesting point about, you know, should art and politics be separate? I'd love to delve into that a little bit later down the line because I think that's an interesting question. Whether that idea of whether we reveal our utopias, you know, I would say that the, our current government, the neoliberal system is, is a form of, I think it's a bit dystopian, but for others, utopian. So perhaps, there is always an agenda of the world people want. We're just more or less willing to articulate it and say, this is my agenda I'm aiming for, you know, um, and thinking about politics, there's all sorts of fantasy stories and being told that aren't necessarily true. Um, but yeah, I would love to hear more from you about that. The role of storytelling in your work, I guess, and, and how you see, storytelling is an art, but it's not necessarily the arts. Um, and yeah, that intersection for you between storytelling, the arts and politics, just to throw a really big bundle at you. <laughs> yeah. I'll just, in a nutshell. Um, look, I mean, just high leveling it for a second here. Like, I think that, um, there has been a sort of catching up uh, from some in the progressive side of politics. So, okay, let me just go back. I grew up a child in the 80s under Reagan in the US and uh, kind of was becoming politically aware and active in high school around the time of Clinton. And what I perceived at the time was this thing in the left of like, we shouldn't need stories and emotion because that's that's kind of beneath us. And it's, it's, you know, the truth will set us free. We just need to give people the right facts and let the, let the truth speak for itself. And, 
you know, people are rational and, and we'll be able to see the, the sort of superiority of our position on these things. And I saw the right really investing in emotion and in moving people from the pulpit to talk back radio. I mean, this was before social media and the plethora of, you know, all of the platforms and, and things like that, that proliferate now, but, you know, just really investing in, in, and meeting people and giving them something visceral, you know, in the gut that they could kind of connect to. And um, it's something that I think, you know, churches were really focused on. How do you create this kind of sense of emotional belonging and, and meaning and, and way that you see the world. And so when that became kind of, you know, when the right wing and the church, um, a portion of the religious movement got together, that became a very powerful thing. And I just thought, wow, the left's getting cramped here, you know, like the progressive, like with all of our little facts and numbers and, you know, um, and it's something that we've seen replicating, you know, said again and again, in terms of, you know, climate scientists, I think there's that famous quote of like, I thought that I could just tell people, you know, I thought our problem was lack of, um, you know, enough understanding about energy or whatever. And now I see it's actually greed or this or that, like, you know, that if we think that we can just change people through the head alone, we are ironically uh, not listening to the facts and to the data because we actually know enough now with psychology and with neuroscience to know that like 97% of thinking is unconscious, um, that we are making big, you know, there's this saying by a messaging um, expert, amazing woman, Anat Shankarasari, who I've learned a lot from, that facts bounce off frames. So if you're fact, like if, if believing your fact means I have to give up my identity, guess what? <laughs> you know, like, um, and so trying to come at people just with fact, um, particularly facts couched in a way that threatens their sense of self or worth or place in the planet, you know, uh, if we think that that's how we're going to win hearts and minds, um, or that's how we're going to spur people to action or spur people to do something differently, then we're just missing um, something so fundamental, which is really what the advertising industry has. Like, you don't pour billions or trillions of dollars into messaging if that's not a return on investment, right? And yet that's what the advertising world has done um, for a very long time. And they grew out of um, kind of the early, it was PR was started by Freud's cousin, you know, so there's, there's this interesting outgrowth of like psychology and the insights there that grew into, um, how do we actually, how do we actually get people to do stuff? And that is connecting to their emotions. It's connecting to their desires. It's making them not feel judged. It's making them feel like they belong. So I think that there has been, um, much bigger emphasis on this in the last couple of decades. And I mean, you know, often, um, you know, we, we've been lucky to have very charismatic leaders uh, in the U.S., you know, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama. You know, the right doesn't often actually have particularly what you would call a charismatic. I mean, you don't think of Margaret Thatcher and go, wow, yeah, you know, that woman. Woo. Um, even Donald Trump. I mean, he's he's kind of like magnetic because it's a bit like watching a train wreck and you just need to see what's good. Like it's like you know, there is something compelling there, but he's not an elegant, eloquent or particularly engaged, you know. So it's it's just this interesting kind of divergence of focus, I guess. And so I feel like progressives have been trying in particularly the last, you know, maybe few years um, going back to, to really try to understand, well, how do we reach people in a different place? And so we talk about, well, you have to meet people where they're at and you can't get people to think about something unless they care about something. And then, you you know, but where this gets really sticky and tricky is then, well, then how do you make, when you're, when you're trying to convey messages with nuance and, you know, emotion and values, but you don't want the messages to come off as just preachy and didactic and, or shame-based or, you know, how do you, how do you create stories that invite people in and, and help them to care and see the world through a different lens and get the importance of what you're trying to care, you know, talk to them about so that you can kind of create some sense of shared values or understanding from which to move forward? Or is even that question really arrogant? Like assuming that people don't care or, or need to be convinced of the, you know, of your position or your thing that you're trying to get them to think about. I'm thinking back to the conversation we had with Tony Hassan and then um, the one with Shakti. And so Tony talked about her art as being, so this is slightly different to storytelling, but just making a link to 
to art. So, so Tony Hassan, who was a podcast guest pretty recently and does art as well as journalism. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. Um, and she was talking about one of the values she sees for art is that it's a moment of collective feeling. So you can be, if the community is looking at a painting, you know, it's a collective moment to emotionally connect, even if your emotions are maybe different to each other's. And then Shakti was talking about who was, he was also a podcast guest recently and is an amazing playwright. And he was talking about the respect that happens in a theatre where people come together and have, you know, his play um, Counting and Cracking, I think it was three and a half hours of, of people spellbound around a shared experience. And it was, so that shared story feels, the, the capacity to share it feels as important as, yeah. Yeah. And I think it's one of the biggest challenges for storytellers today is that we are not consuming the same stories anymore. And I am like the 50 millionth person to make this point, but how do you actually, you know, there was a time when you could count on 90% of the adult population, you know, to be watching a particular program or, or at least watching, you know, commercial television and, and, you know, was it channel seven, nine or 10, but like now, you know, the, the just completely endless number of options and splintering means that we're not like, where do we get the same stories? Where do we share the same stories so that we can come at the world or come at a question, an issue, a challenge or a problem and, from the same place? Yeah. And that makes me think about that work we've done on the public good and public space. And so I grew up in Canberra where there's no billboard advertising. So there's no advertising on the bus shelters. There's, you know, n- no public billboards. And when I go to places like Sydney, I'm just like, oh my God, there is so much. Yeah. I remember going down into, you know, one of the train stations and seeing the escalators plastered with horse racing advertisements, waiting for the train, you know, plastered with whatever movie. And for those of you who live in those places, you're probably like, yeah, like we know thanks, you know, but for me, <laughs> you know, who now lives in Hobart where there's not much of that either. Like it was this massive, intense shock of, a collective experience of being not really being told a story, although snippets of story, but a space of yeah, you know, yeah, marketed at, which is quite different to how we could use our public spaces. It's a really good point because if we're uncomfortable with the idea of going back to that question of should art and politics mix, if we're uncomfortable with the idea of government controlling our storytelling, which I think most of us would be, but then who are the patrons of the messages? the ideas, the purpose behind them that we consume. I mean, Shakti talked about the billions of dollars that are spent in advertising and economics and that kind of almost diminish our humanity or that's their effect. You know, the goal of advertising is to make us discontent, to want something that we don't already have. You know, as imagine if we were fostering that amount of money or a fraction of that amount of money into something with a different goal. You know, the, the kind of message, like imagine if the messages that you receive when you walk down into the escalator into the train station were, you know, you belong here and actually you're, you're, you've got something really valuable to contribute and we see you and, you know, like, how can we be together as a community? What do you need in your life? Like it's, it's almost so hard for us, you know, what's that quote about? It's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. Like it can be really tricky and which is going back to your Margaret Atwood course, like I love that idea of then stepping outside of our current paradigm and going like, well, what would we want? our sort of messages um, to be. I think it's interesting you said there that most of us would feel uncomfortable with government controlling the story, I think is what you said. And I I find that a really tricky, sticky, I don't know, interesting point, right? Because what we, what I imagine most of us don't want is to be manipulated in ways that aren't good for us or in ways that are, are serving a purpose that is dodgy in some way. But who gets to decide That's and right. define that? And so, because I think about what I want from government, right? And I want government to have a vision and have a story and hold that for who we are, you know, like we are who we are as a country and the, and, and to really highlight those values. But of course, like you say, there could be, there have been, <laughs> and you know, there still are people in power who have a very different vision to me. Um, and so I don't really have an answer, but I think it's interesting to think about, and your point about, well, who else controls it? 
you know, and maybe that's where it comes back to, you know, democracy as a living thing. We can't just say, well, government does it. Like we have to participate. We have to actively. Or we decided once upon a time, you know, like I feel like in the US, we just hark back to, well, we had the founding fathers hundreds of years ago and we had this vision once upon a time and set out in the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights. And so that that's the only vision that, you know, like that's it. That's what we've got as opposed to, well, what do we want our, our country and our society to sort of be like today? And I think going back to that question of like government versus business, like a big part of what has kind of filled the void in America of like, well, what does unite us? What are the, what are the shared stories that we now can buy into believing? Like it's Taylor Swift and, you know, the, the kind of the, the pop culture stuff, but it's also where we shop, you know, and even that started to become splintered, you know, and progressive shop at Costco and conservative shop at Walmart or there's, you know, but like, there's this interesting, like splintering happening even there, but at least when it comes to gadgets and stuff and things that we need and like, that's like this kind of, oh yeah, well, we can all, you know, we can all um, share that experience of shopping, which is like pretty weird. weird and And like every, like every national holiday in Australia is dedicated to drinking. Every national holiday in America is an excuse to shop. Like, seriously, it's just, you know, and and now we're seeing Black Friday coming here and all this kind of, and, and I'm like, I'm not trying to sound like some high horse person who doesn't ever enjoy going shopping because of course, but it's just like, it's just a weird thing when that's, if, is that our glue? Is that the best we got? Because those are the people with the loudest voice um, in that kind of marketplace of ideas, you know, to, to use that term um, really clearly. But I'm also thinking about somebody that we have interviewed for the podcast and hopefully we'll be able to release it very soon. We're just, uh, I'm having, I'm having doubts about sound tech issues in the background, but really interesting guy, Dr. Wesley Watkins, who is the founder of something called the jazz and democracy project that he started in Oakland, California, trying to teach kids about democracy through this kind of metaphor of a good jazz band. And what is it, what does it actually mean to be a citizen? What does it actually mean to participate in a group? How do we balance things like the voice of the individual and that desire for self-expression and self-actualization with the kind of quality of the needs of the group of the whole or the thing that we're trying to produce? And, you know, he has this thing about like, you could, you know, what are the qualities of a good leader? Um, and a good leader, in and whether it's a band leader or a, you know, president or prime minister, well, they have vision. And then do you like that vision? Like, do you actually like the vision of the society of the thing that they are trying to create? Because if you don't, well, then that's not the person for you. And I I do agree that we need vision, I think, obviously, or I probably wouldn't be in this job. But, you know, I want our leaders to feel, um, and I think, you know, you go back to people's maiden speeches in parliament and all, you know, it's always fascinating to be like, why are you here? What is actually your utopia that you would see us create, even if you would hate that word or never, or, you know, kind of question the fundamental premise of it. And then how much, yeah, how much do I buy into that? How much power sort of do I want to give you? Um, and and what I think one of the things is like, you know, what can we learn from the arts in terms of the way that it allows all of these different things to come together into something that feels like a cohesive whole. Like that's a, that's a big kind of maybe sloppy metaphor, but that's also a democracy, right? You know, whether that's a song or whether that's a a play or whether that's a painting, you know, like how do we come together and all of our difference and nuance and diversity but also all of our universality, like we ha- we are fundamentally human beings, you know, living on an ecosystem and on a planet and and need certain things that are the same and love and cry. And, you know, like how how do we try to create a world that caters to our universal needs and brings out the best version of ourselves that we currently have come up with, you know, and, and democracy should be a living project. And I think, you know, I know we're running out of time to dive into a new part of this. We've talked a lot about storytelling and then you're a little bit more generally about the arts and, you know, the interview you have with Dr. Wes. And I think there's interesting things there about the practice of arts and creation is in itself just a useful skill for us to have that translates across democracy or whatever work we, we do. And thinking about something um, Judy Horacek once said about her cartoons, that her cartoons, her cartoon worlds are spaces for her to try out new normals 
And she was talking particularly about gender. And, you know, back when she started cartooning, she was saying that this was, it was really, you know, you, you got married to a man and you had kids and that was, that was family. And so she was playing with the idea of different families in her cartoons. And I, I think that, you know, we could probably have a whole other podcast episode on this, but there's, there's the story that we need and who controls the story and who do we think should control the story. And then there's the, how do we have space in our own individual lives and in our social lives to practice art, not because we want to be in the gallery or need to be on the stage, but because art is where different ideas can kind of smash up against each other outside of the constraints of how things currently are. And I think that's... And in a less confronting way, right? Yeah, because if I don't like your play. If I don't like your thing, that's fine, yeah. you know, or yeah. And I, it occurred to me that, you know, like what an interesting way to learn about democracy through the metaphor, something that you, it doesn't like attack your identity or your worth whatsoever versus getting teenagers to debate left versus right or which politicians they like versus don't like. Like, I do think the arts gives us a safe place to experiment, to be bold, to try new ideas, to experience and explore new ideas, to step into somebody else's shoes and say, oh, this is, you know, this is a slice of what it might be like to have this kind of experience. Um, and I think, you know, I was talking to some young filmmakers in my sort of family and extended family recently, and um, they were saying that there's, you know, this recognition, they were talking about the new revamp, what's the high school show that's been revamped? Heartbreak high and how how much how good it is, like how seriously freaking good it is. And I can't wait to go it's watch great. it. I um, watched it. Yeah. And like, and how wonderful and empowering it is that the care, you know, the character who has autism on the show has autism in real and like, and so there, but one of the markers of kind of like a group that was traditionally either invisible or maligned and misunderstood kind of arriving is when you're no longer the token woman. And so you have to embody everything that every woman everywhere is supposed to, you know, be struggling with. And you're no longer the token person of color or the token person of gender diversity or sexual orientation. Diversity. So, you know, and, and just how great, like, is it, um, is it actually like, is that what we're should not what we should be aiming for, but like, when we can recognize that they're just universal experiences and see each other's humanity and universalism in almost, you know, behind whatever the mask, whatever the body, whatever, that that's when we feel like, oh yeah, I get, like women are, like you were saying, women are people, people experience periods. Like it's, I don't know, I'm, I'm not making this point as well as I would like to, but I thought that was another kind of question around like, you know, the room for exploring the the kind of rabbit holes of different experiences and the room for lifting up and going, but at the end of the day, mm. yeah. And I think that's that's both, that's the having the diversity of stories because some of us have very different lived experiences. Totally. Um, and also putting that in a context of, you know, in inverted commas, normal, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes. It's like whoever you are, you are normal. And I think that's a really positive message that as I'm starting to hear across so many different conversations um, in so many different contexts. And I just think it must be really validating and affirming for, for people when we haven't felt that way or, you know, whatever, whatever it's been. So I've talked about Heartbreak High. I'm going to go away and watch that because I need to. Is there a piece of art or storytelling that you either want to practice or you want to go check out? Like what's something for you that kind of fills your cup in that direction or that you could recommend to other people? I know I'm putting you totally on the spot here. Yeah, and I haven't prepped you, you for this. You see my eyeballs like expanding. Your eyes are like, like, giving me the, like, for all the listeners, Millie's giving me the, how could you ask? Yeah. <laughs> Look, I, I really hate being asked about kind of pop culture stuff because I, it doesn't have to be pop culture. I, I know, but you know, art because I always feel like I live under a rock. Um, but I, I think in terms of like thinking about, you know, TV art, like I just come back to, to the series Ted Lasso and I know that everybody uh, loves it, but yeah, I, you know, that you're talking about Marvel superheroes. I love it because it is, I don't really care about soccer. I don't, yeah. You know, so for those of you who don't know Ted Lasso, if you also live under a rock like me, um, you know, it's, it's, it's the story of, a football team and, and the characters around it, but it's particularly about non-toxic masculinity. It's about empowered women. Like it's, it's about mm. people being really nice to each other across the mm. stereotypes. And I think for me, art at the moment is that refuge of let's just pretend we're in a world that we want to exist. 
Mm. Yeah, so it's not it's particularly highbrow art, but it, it's, it's, no, that, I think it's, a, it's that, oh, this could totally. be normal and real. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Millie, like I love Gilmore Girls and I will say that on the air. Okay. Ted Lasso is not that embarrassing. Um, and like the difference of like talking about non-toxic masculinity, like if I, versus showing it's show, don't tell. Right. And, and, and showing it in the context, like one of the characters is this gruff guy who swears every other word, you know, like Roy Kent is beloved and he is the most prickly, you know, on the outside, at least of, of all of them and talking about why women should have equality and why women should be empowered and why, you know, versus showing, well, what would, what would really healthy female friendship look like where they weren't tearing each other down, but they were, you know, and where we celebrated that aspect of women in power and women in leadership and women leading literally a boys club. And like, that's where I think the arts gets us in a way that fact. Yeah. And and politics, you know, if, if there's a there's a poet who talks about how music is what language wishes it could be. And I think that art is what politics wishes it could be on some level. You know, I, it's it's the thing that moves us. It's the thing that that we delight in and that we gravitate towards. And politics is kind of the spinach. It's the vegetables that we're trying to get everybody to care about because it's good for you if you actually pay attention and, you know. Um, but thank you for today. Today has not felt like spinach. It has felt like Well, look, refuge. you're not getting off the hook that easily. <laughs> oh, damn it. Come on. I was already that. Um, I heard someone say yesterday we need poetry and grammar, and I really like that. Um, <laughs> Amen. Yeah. That's so good. Uh, but what about you? The 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 art that you're excited about or the, the storytelling or? Well, I am actually genuinely excited to go watch Heartbreak High. Um I mean, for me, I have traditionally read mostly nonfiction. And so my fictional loves, I've already admitted to some pretty embarrassing ones, Gilmore Girls, for example. Uh, but I don't, yeah, I mean, in terms of something new that I'm sort of excited, I know there are so many things that I should be going to watch and going to listen to and going to read. Um, I did watch a uh SBS Dateline thing that our boss recommended to us, Louise, she talked about um, why is Finland the happiest oh, yeah. country? Yeah. Like I would say to people who maybe want, you know, documentaries kind of being the bridge between these two worlds. And yes, this is a cop-out answer. I am aware. Um, that is an interesting one, like a documentary, right? Because it still makes us, it's still trying to make us feel, it's still trying to give us a sliver into a human insight in behind the statistic behind, like, which is also what obviously good journalism tries to do, which was um, one of the things that I studied. And, you know, and it, and it does, it follows this Australian woman who's married to a Finnish man and how, you know, does she feel happier being in Finland? And if so, why and how? And what are the systems that kind of support that? What are the shadows and the downsides to all of it? So, um, I think that's, that would be a recommendation that I would put out there to people. Um, but yeah, I'm sticking with Heartbreak High and Gilmore Girls, man. All right, everybody. This has been uh, a lovely conversation. Thanks so much for tuning in and we will catch you next time. was really fun but I felt the need to kind of ground it at the end so here are some of my notes from that conversation with Millie. The first is that obviously there are many ways to approach this notion of world building whether starting with the world as we have it and trying to fix the things or actually creating it anew from fiction which somehow ends up feeling more powerful and more real when we do it well. Number two, stories shape us, especially when we're young, teaching us about the world and our place in it for better and for worse. Like, you can be strong and feminine, or the future looks pretty awesome from the deck of the Enterprise. And sadly, most men can't dance like Patrick Swayze. Number three, politics and power are always a contest of story, and that story is never finished. To try to separate art and politics is probably a bit of a furphy to begin with. Number four, any shared construct is based on a certain amount of story and telling and fiction, whether that's believing in money and democracy or Taylor Swift and Target. Number five, we can't change minds through fact alone. The science is clear, the evidence is in. 
But creating good stories that actually do change people's minds, especially without fueling blame and shame or just being really boring and bossy, is a lot harder than it looks. Number six, art gives us a moment of collective feeling. And stories are the glue that really do hold society together. So one of our big challenges right now is we're not all consuming the same stories anymore. Number seven, who actually decides what the story is, the stories we're exposed to and the purpose behind them? Because if we're uncomfortable with government doing that, what about the advertising industry? Number eight, we need poetry and grammar. Number nine, Art is really what politics wishes it could be. It is the ultimate show, don't tell. And number 10, when in doubt, remember, the future can't be fact-checked. Thanks so much for listening today. And I am super pleased to tell you the sound checked out and that episode with Dr. Wesley Watkins, founder of the Jazz and Democracy Project, will be in your ears next. So look out for that one. Millie is also having a really cool conversation with two historians and authors, Frank Bongiorno and Julianne Schultz. Julianne has just published The Idea of Australia, A Search for the Soul of the Nation, and Frank's new book is called Dreamers and Schemers. This is a really cool conversation about the Australian identity, past, present, and future. So much to look forward to. Thank you for listening and supporting this podcast. We'll see you next time on The Remakers. Remakers, a podcast by Australia Remade. We celebrate Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and cultures at the very heart of what it is to be Australian. That is 60,000 plus years as the oldest continuing civilization on earth. I'm recording my part of our chat from Muinina country in Rutruwida, Tasmania. And I record from Dara country, which is just north of Sydney. Our deepest respects to the elders and traditional custodians of these lands and waters. This podcast would not be possible without the talents of the incredible Anna Wilson, our producer. You can learn more about Australia Remade, sign up to get emails and join the community of remakers over on our website. That's australiaremade.org. And if you love the show, please rate and review on iTunes. If you want to send us your ideas or thoughts for future episodes, or just share something that's on your mind, you can email us at podcast at australiaremade.org or give us a call. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for all that you do and for being part of this community. We'll see you next time.